Hello and welcome to the Fast Break Podcast, a podcast about UConn men's basketball. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm joined by Sean McGrath, Patrick Martin, and Dan Madigan. Since we last spoke, folks, the Huskies had won four games in a row, including an absolute thrashing of Providence, pretty solid beatdowns of St. John's and Villanova, and a thrashing of DePaul. They ended with a road win at Villanova. They're facing Providence to open the Big East tournament. But uh, Dan Hurley's squad has now won five in a row and eight of its last nine. How are we feeling about the way the Huskies have performed to close out the season? It's really hard to say that a team is playing their best basketball after they started the year 14-0. and But I think UConn looks better now than they did when they started uh, on that 14 game win streak to open up the year. And granted there were some big wins against Alabama, Iowa state, Oklahoma state, just to name a few um, in that first win streak. And they stumbled through January, but they look even better now. I think it's not just the teams that they're beating. It's the way that they're beating them. They gave Villanova their first double digit loss at home since 2020. Um, They beat the living daylight out of DePaul. They handled St. John's uh, in a road game. I'm using big quotation marks. Um, Pretty much handled them for the entire game. Really no questions asked. And beat the daylight out of Providence at home um, a few weeks back now. So it's just really impressive to just see them consistently play well after after this team was really like Jekyll and Hyde for so much of the winter, like early part of conference play. And I really think they're playing some of their best basketball at the absolute perfect time. That DePaul game was absolutely incredible. I mean, 27 nothing is 27 nothing. It's the second largest run that anyone's had in, in college basketball this year, and it's only one shy of that. That was just an absolute beatdown from start to finish, and they really are playing really good basketball right now, and it's really encouraging going into tournament play to see what they'll be able to do. I think back to the Austin Powers sequel where he loses his mojo, and is all stressed and worried. I've lost my mojo. I've lost my mojo. What was the moral of Austin Powers too? It was the mojo was in you all along. And that's essentially how we viewed the season is they had four road losses in five games in January. And since then they've righted the ship. And like Madigan said, they've looked better doing it. Jordan Hawkins has progressed as a player. Andre Jackson has progressed as a player. Uh, Tristan Newton is finding more consistency. Alex Caravan is in the running for Big East Freshman of the Year. And you can argue that the the slate now of their five wins is across the board more difficult than, you know, they had to play a a crappy Florida team. And I think they had a, another bye game in there. Um, so across the board, they had, they, they faced off for opponents, you know, on the road, on the road against St. John's is, is still tough. And I mean, St. John's put up 86 points on them. Um, so they are trending in the right direction. And more importantly, individual players are looking completely different than they did in November and December. I, I agree too that. I like how they're playing right now better than what we saw earlier in the season. And for a couple of reasons, they've cleaned up a lot of things. They've gotten a lot more consistent and even their stars have have gotten better. I mean, Jordan Hawkins was far less consistent at the beginning of the season than, than he is right now. Adama Sunogo has figured out how to be 
um, kind of less of a black hole with the ball and to get it out a little bit more. And then Andre Jackson, I mean, we, we discussed it in the last podcast, but him flourishing right now, truly and absolutely flourishing, playing within the offense. He hit two threes at Villanova. That's beautiful, beautiful stuff. And that has UConn looking like an absolute buzzsaw right now. I thought, you know, not only did they, you know, are they all putting it together? And and we also discussed how how Tristan Newton and Naheem Aline playing better has also helped them. But uh, they they really just handled Villanova. Like they they kept them at arm's length the entire time after a tight, tough start. And that's a good Villanova team too. They're they're much better than the team that UConn beat at Excel earlier in the season. And I think uh, you got to give a lot of credit for the way the way they beat Villanova, the way they beat St. John's, and the way they beat Providence as well. I'm uh, sorry to pick on DePaul a little bit there, but um, but those are all all extremely impressive in just how they how they happened. And with Villanova in particular doing that on the road. The Villanova crowd was ready to back the Wildcats if they got any closer, but they just didn't in the second half. I I do give the crowd a lot of credit for getting loud as hell when the lead got cut down to nine, but it just really never got more dangerous than that in the second half. And that's super, super impressive for the Huskies to have done that and be at that way this late in the season. It was Villanova's second least offensive efficient performance of the year, and it was on senior day at home in a game that, you know, Villanova is really probably auto bid or bust at this point, but, you know, that was a game that I'm sure that they definitely wanted a whole hell of a lot. And that defense showed up and that was really, really, really impressive. And the it's a cliche, but defense travels. And if they're playing, the defense was what was lagging behind a little bit through a lot of that June, uh, January swoon. So if the defense is going to start playing a lot better in March, then it's all systems go for them. Yeah, I've been kind of looking through and tracking UConn through Ken Palm over the past few weeks for some of the bracketology stuff that we've been doing over at the blog. And uh, the thing that was really impressive for me is like that DePaul game, right? DePaul obviously has no business hanging with a team like UConn. UConn gets down 2 nothing. They rattle off uh, a 27 nothing run put them away, put up a great offensive performance, um, just dominate them from start to finish. They're averaging 1.3 points per possession, put up nearly 90 points. Four days later, or however many days later, they go down to Villanova, and it's the defense that shines, and they just shut down Villanova, like you said, Sean, one of their worst offensive outputs for the Wildcats all season, and their defensive efficiency in Ken Palm, UConn's, jumped up almost 10 spots. I think they were like 21 or 22 before tip, and they were up to 12 after that. So um, the defense was really good at the beginning of the year during that 14-game winning streak, and then it literally fell off a cliff uh, when things started getting ugly. I don't know if we'll ever get an answer for how or why that happened because it was just one of the, the weirdest phenomena, especially for a Dan Hurley team. But whatever adjustments needed to be made have definitely been made, and it's really cool to see this team not only – look good on both ends, but be able to win in different ways, right? Sometimes they just need to blow a team out and, and just be better on offense, and it doesn't matter what the defense looks like. Uh, other times they can clamp down and rely on their, you know, those guys like Andre Jackson, Sonogo's defense looks a little bit better, um, rely on those guys to to be stoppers and, and put an opponent's offense at bay. So um, really impressive just to see them grind out wins in, in a few different ways. Yeah, I mean, I wrote an article 
before the Villanova game about how important the bench had to be for any tournament prospects. And that bench went up and responded by putting up three points against Villanova. And they didn't need to because, you know, Caravan was hitting, Andre Jackson was even hitting, uh, you know, there's enough firepower in that starting five. But if anyone in that starting five is off, look to the St. John's game where they put up 32 bench points and it wasn't just a Donovan Klingon game. Um, Calcaterra went off. I think Naheem Aline chipped in a few. So again, like Madigan said, there are so many different ways they can beat you, not just offense or defense, but they can beat you in a track meet. If you want to slow it down, like kind of like Villanova tried to do, um, you know, they can beat you in the half court with spacing and shooting. Uh, you throw it, you know, throw it inside to Sonogo and Klingon. Um, there's, there's no real weakness to that team. And that means there essentially is no ceiling when you put themselves in a tournament environment as long, I think, as you avoid kind of fouls and things that disrupt momentum. Because this is a team that thrives on momentum. You know, the 27-0 run, uh, they are among, I think, the top 10 or 20 in the country. I'll look this up here in the Evan Maya uh, kill shot statistic, where it's 10 points or more. Uh, you're rattling off runs of 10 points or more. So this is a team that as long as they have that in them, uh, they they eventually just separate from them. It was insane. I pulled this up. Only two of their wins have been by nine points or less. Uh, one was the first home Nova game and then Georgetown. So, you know, when they win, they are blowing the doors off people, which makes for like an incredibly intriguing postseason setup. I'm definitely encouraged, yeah, by the fact that this is a battle-tested team. They have been through adversity. They've been through tough games. Um, and then just to point something else out about kind of this this stretch recently is it's all been second meetings, you know? So it's not like you caught a team by surprise. It's teams that know you, teams that know your scout, know your weaknesses, that know to hang off Andre Jackson. Um, and and still, uh, UConn is not just figuring it out, not just winning, but really crushing. Um, in the interest of kind of shouting out, I mean, I think just the fact that uh, you've got Sonogo and Hawkins playing at, at such a like really consistent level for the most part. Hawkins has been a little, Hawkins had a little bit of a dip against DePaul and, and then started not, not great against Villanova, but uh, him and Sonogo have been so consistent and that gives them such a strong foundation on the scoring side. Uh, both of those players were named first team all big East, very well deserved. It looks like neither is going to be a candidate for league player of the year, which uh would be interested in folks thoughts thoughts about that but to talk about a couple other guys who who got some big east honors donovan Klingon and alex caravan named to the all big east freshman team very good signs for uconn to have two players on the first team two players on the freshman team and a very good recruiting class coming in next year no big deal we'll talk about that later but um i i did want to shout out really alex caravan that was all just a very long setup for Wow, Alex Caravan is playing really, really good. And uh, it's it's been nice to see his defensive improvement, uh, the way he uh, really stepped up to the challenge, uh, particularly in the Providence game. Uh, Dan Hurley said after the Providence game, he was like, you know, Alex Caravan was defending an NBA guy, but Caravan is maybe an NBA guy too. 
And that was the first, you know, kind of mention of something like that. I guess Caravan has also been on mock draft boards, but, um, you know, he's he's so impressive. He's so smart for how he plays as a freshman. I know he's older than a freshman, enrolled last year, et cetera. But just the way he he contributes within the flow of the offense and then uh, keeps the game, keeps the ball moving, uh, impressive stuff. He, that he's in the starting lineup for a UConn team that's this good. Also, just very, very impressive stuff, even if he's not always uh, necessarily lighting it up on the stat sheet. Yeah, I mean, it's Caravan's season has been unbelievable. It's it's crazy to think that he wasn't the starter at the beginning of the year, right? Like, he had to work his way into the starting lineup, had some uh, some breaks that let him kind of weasel his way in there, and he took the reins and never looked back. He's third in the Big East in offensive rating for Ken Palm. And he's shooting 40% from three in conference play, um, which is just unbelievable as a freshman. And, and like you said, Amana is six foot eight. Um, that's that's NBA material right there. That's enough to at least get you a look. Um, there's definitely some things he needs to work on. His athleticism isn't the best. His footwork uh, defensively could use some work. He's improved all of that throughout the year. There's, you know, stuff that he can definitely continue to get better at. He's not a one and done type of guy, but he's a really good player and he's going to be an absolute anchor for this team next season because he's, he's a really, really fun player to watch. Um, I have to imagine he's going to at least get a share of the big East freshman of the year honors. We're recording this before they do that on Wednesday. Um, But he's been a huge reason why this team has been so successful, even while Hawkins, Tanogo, Andre Jackson have had their struggles. He's kind of always been in the mix. Um, There's been some games where he's, been not so great he had five points and a loss to Creighton five points and a loss to Xavier but um other than that he's kind of been one of the guys that's kept things going uh in those games where UConn lost or was losing and needed to kind of stay in it um he's just been a really steady force in this lineup and I'm excited to see him grow over these next few years do we think Sonogo's being snubbed at all here not not really being in consideration for the Big East Player of the Year award I our, our good friend uh, Tucker Warner made the case on twitter.com with some compelling data evidence. What do you guys, what do you guys think there? Couldn't see it cause Twitter was down today, but um, no, in all seriousness, I, I think what makes Sonogo hard to hard to like, because he, he gets his baskets in a very like against the grain type of way. He, Dan Hurley has realized that you can't just throw the ball into the po- into the post and let him take four or five dribbles and make a move. So because of that, he gets a lot of his output through putbacks, um, you know, screening rolls, stuff that doesn't really pass the eye test. Um, so in the sense, like, yeah, I understand, like, I understand the love he doesn't get there. But when you do look at his numbers, he he is the quietest performer, I think, of anyone in that group of like, you look like, oh, wow, he put up 16 and seven. How did he get that? And it, especially the fact that he expanded his game out to the three point line, uh, it, you know, converts his free throws. There are really no weaknesses. But I think for Biggie's player of the year, I feel like they're just looking for something with a little more like pizzazz and pop. And that's just not really his style. What's crazy is he's shooting 36.2% from beyond the arc. I mean, it's only on 47 attempts, so let's not pre- let's not pretend that this is like an absolutely massive sample size. But for someone who took one three-point shot in his first two years on campus to suddenly be hitting at a clip where 
he's gonna hit he's gonna hit his open shots at a decent at a decent amount. Like that's really impressive, especially for someone his size to add that. I can't imagine he was taking too many outside shots before this summer based on his size. That's something that we probably shouldn't overlook. Yeah, I was looking at Ken Palm too while we were kind of talking about this. And if you go by like the all conference team that Ken Palm spits out, not only is Sonogo on the list, but he's also the he's the number one player. Um and I do feel like that means something. He was a preseason player of the year. Like he basically lived up to every expectation that people had of him. I think he has definitely gotten overshadowed from Jordan Hawkins at times, not necessarily because Hawkins is like a better player, more consistent player. It's just, you know, people love the threes. People love the three ball. It's fun to watch Jordan Hawkins, you know, jack transition threes and and pull up with basically no space and, and make shots. But he's in the top 10. Sonogo's in the top 10 of basically every offensive metric uh, in the conference. He's an unbelievable rebounder. Um, pretty decent defender, too. I mean, in, in terms of the block percentage, that was enough to get uh, Ryan Kalkbrenner, Defensive Player of the Year. So maybe that'll carry some weight for Sonogo in the in the Player of the Year race. But um, it's just tough. I, I think there's a lot of good big men in this conference this year. It, it's Sonogo's it's, really good. I don't know if he's that much better than any of them. Um, and I think that makes it hard. Whereas you look at someone like Tyler Kulik from Marquette, he's the engine that makes that offense go. It's one of the best offenses in the country, regular season champion um, team. There, there's a narrative there that makes it a little bit easier to kind of give him the award, I think. But he should definitely be in the mix. I don't think he'll win. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we play this clip uh, late Wednesday afternoon and I look like an idiot. But I just don't think he's going to win the award. Call me crazy, but... I almost feel like Donovan Klingon being there and being his backup has simplified Sonogo where, you know, if you take Tyler Kolick off Marquette, Marquette is rudderless. And if you take Sonogo out and you put Klingon in there, they're still pretty darn good. And I think it's almost at the point of like, he gets his production, but he doesn't kind of have that kind of game changing ethos that they give to people with those awards. I, th- I think that's exactly right because, yeah, there's nothing that looks so spectacular and he just was maybe missing some of those like high, uh, I don't know what you call them, just high high performance, great performances, great individual game performances that really stand out and get people feeling crazy where he hits, I don't know, a couple of threes and a few also nice, you know, low post moves get displayed. Um he is a he is a really strong offensive player. He's just a good you know really great two way player as a whole. Just to just to you know again I referenced Tucker. He mentioned uh, he's first in the league in points per game, third in total scoring percentage, second in win shares, second in BPM blocks per minute or something, second in defensive rating, first in PER. Uh, I mean those those are all very good numbers for it to be like, well Sonogo's not in the race because he's like not a sexy player kind of um i i also just think like maybe if yukon was had a slightly more successful season he might be on the radar a little bit more for it like let's just say yukon beats seton hall and st john's one more time and has a just slightly nicer looking record again maybe it's a 30 point game for sonogo in one of those and that literally could be the difference which is absurd uh of course but i i think that maybe plays a role into it I am not impressed with Kalkbrenner or I have been on the record as not being very impressed with Creighton 
as a unit, as a whole, to be completely honest with you. Um, but again, I can't say that I, I truly watch enough of the rest of the league to, to make a real confident, like, man, is Adama Sonogo better than these guys? Is there a possibility that the people who watch UConn all the time split their vote and maybe some guys voted for Hawkins? Who knows? Um, but yeah, I do, I do find his lack of being even in the discussion kind of interesting, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of narrative ball, like you said, Amon. I mean, UConn was uh, projected to come in third, right, from the coaches' poll, and Sonogo was player of the year. They're going to come in fifth. They, you know, are still having arguably the best season out of any of the teams in the Big East. Uh, but just the way the chips fell in the conference, they didn't really do as well as people expected. Um, and I think just the way Sonogo's season went, I felt like he was so strong at the beginning of the year. Like, I'm looking at his box scores from early in the year. 25 points against Alabama, 27 points against Butler. And it's not that he fell off because he's in double figures pretty much every game of conference play except for two, two or three. But um, I just think in that time, like Marquette's kind of jumped out and established themselves as, as the most successful team in the conference right now. And we'll see. I mean, th there's a few other people that are in the mix for that award, but I feel like it's Colex to lose. Um, but like I said, I hope I'm wrong. And then as it relates to Big East Freshman of the Year, I think this is another example where a person's production and resume is, is really quite good when it, and in this instance, talking about Alex Caravan. Uh, but there was one other guy who was a unanimous all-freshman team pick. His name was surprisingly not Donovan Klingon. Um, and I guess, you know, we, we, we've been talking about this and could see a Cam Whitmore type individual uh, maybe taking the award, maybe getting a share. What do we think? It's not impossible. I, I mean, I, I think it comes back to what I was talking about before. Whitmore is a really good player. He was injured for part of the season, so he missed some games. Um, he's a, like a projected lottery pick. He's one of the top players in this year's draft class. Like, I just feel like there's a lot of stuff around it that would make it that way. Like he had a very good season, um, just statistically not as good as Alex Caravans, but um, that doesn't stop them from wanting to maybe give that award to someone who's going to be in the NBA next year and have a good season, looks good for the conference and stuff. But um, I do think it's Caravans to lose. I do think Klingon has an outside shot at it too. I know uh, I saw his dad tweet out Ryan Kalkbrenner's, defensive stats and Donovan Klingon's defensive stats, incredible support. Um, and they were very identical. There's, you know, one key factor there is that Klingon was playing like a quarter of the minutes. Um, but that's not something he can control. That's, that's only something Dan Hurley can control. So um, Klingon was dominant game changing pretty much every time he stepped on the court. Like, I don't think he ever had a, a really bad, you know, four or five minute stretch when he was in. Um, and his ability to just totally change the pace of the game was remarkable throughout the season. And it was such a, you know, such an ace in Dan Hurley's pocket that he could just throw that out there and kind of flip things over if people were, if defenses were keying in on Sonogo. So um, I'd be shocked if Caravan doesn't at least have a share of that award. But um, if he does share it, I think Klingon has a shot at splitting it with him, to be frank. Does anyone, this is a little out outrageous, but does anyone see a little bit of Clay Thompson in Caravan? Now, obviously not one of the greatest. He won't be one of the greatest shooters. I saw everyone's eyes raise, 
won't be one of the greatest shooters, you know, of our generation, but could potentially, as far as like, like a less athletic version of Clay Thompson. Is am I am I a little crazy? I don't know. You, I, I don't watch the NBA at all. To be completely honest, I know the video game and uh, some of the guys when the playoffs happen, like LeBron and such. But um, so I'm not probably the best person to ask this this comparison for. Yeah, I mean, Patrick, I think I could see it. I I think it's a little bit of a stretch. I was looking at his Ken Palm comps just for fun his number one pump is our number one comp is 2019 tyler Polly, which is just really funny um and then there's some other ones here tyler lyden from syracuse um in 2016 and city bay who's an nba guy um or was an nba guy so i think that's maybe a bit of a stretch but he can definitely improve his athleticism his speed agility that type of stuff um he's improving as a defender I don't think he's as good coming off of screens. I feel like most of Caravan's threes have been like open, like wide open, like set shots. Like he's he's not really like curling around screens or picking and pop and picking and rolling. So uh, I think that's something he needs to work on in his game, but he's an awesome, he's just a great like knockdown three point shooter that UConn really hasn't had in a long time. Like since those 2014, 2011 title runs really. So it's just such a relief to have somebody like that. Uh, and have him flank Hawkins on the other end of the floor. Just absolutely brutal to defend. I would say the other the other NBA comparison or, or conversation that we need to have is, of course, about Donovan Klingon. Um, now, has he exactly shown enough statistically on the court to maybe merit NBA draft consideration this year? Perhaps, perhaps, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But... Uh, he's definitely shown enough skill. He's definitely shown enough being seven foot two and athletic. And uh, I think we know that that can be enough to get on the NBA radar. And if he has, you know, improved his athleticism the way he did in the last year, it uh, would be hard to imagine NBA scouts are not thinking about getting into his mind and saying, hey, buddy, come do this. Maybe even it's the G League for a year. It's better than college. I, I don't want to, you know, bring up things that are not the most ideal for the Yukon Huskies, but, um, you know, there's a really strong argument that he's the next best pro prospect after Hawkins on this roster. And, um, you know, without, without any inside information beyond knowing that NBA scouts are interested in him, which is not that, not that new. Um, I think the possibility of him leaving this year is, is not as crazy as it sounded a few months ago or, or this time last year. It'd be awesome if he stayed, but something to think about. Yeah, it's definitely more than zero. Um, he's seven foot two, 265 pounds, and has shown at least a little bit of ability on both the offensive and defensive end. If he decides that NIL money and um, collegiate glory is not enough for him, then he's probably going to leave because someone will take a second round and someone will take a second round flyer on him and throw him in the G league for a year or two until he's better. Um, He's also not yet. um, He also just turned 19 the other day. So that's, you know, he's young, which they also enjoy. Um, For contrast, Alex Caravan is already 20. 
Uh, so that's something that's also something to consider. Yeah, I mean, I think he's almost definitely going to declare for the NBA draft. I don't think that's a shock. Like they changed the rules a few years back. It's basically like a free pass. You get to talk with scouts, work out with scouts. They tell you what what you can work on, and then you can make a decision. So there's no doubt in my mind that he's going to do that. Um, there's obviously some things he needs to work on. Like he has a good shooting stroke. I, I watched him play a bunch in high school. Like I, I think the mechanics are there. It has not translated at all. He's shooting like 50% from the free throw line. Um, I think he's honestly just a, a much better shooter than that. Like he's not going to be like Tristan Newton or Hawkins from the stripe, but he could easily be like a 70%, 65% free throw shooter. Um, and that could translate beyond the arc as well. Um, I also think this is honestly just a situation where NIL money might matter. Like uh, I, the prospect of being in the NBA and being in the G League is really cool and the G League's a lot better than it used to be. Um, but those salaries are, are not much. And that's something that a, a kid from Bristol, Connecticut, who's already, you know, I would say almost a household name, uh, pretty well known just based on what he did in high school and what he's doing now at the college level. Um, it's a perfect opportunity for uh, an NIL collective, whatever you want to call it, some car dealership to now legally step in and, and give him enough money or multiple companies, brands to give him enough money to, to keep them around or at least make it something worth considering for another year. So I, I think he'll be back next year. I think he'll definitely declare for the NBA draft and he's a very legitimate NBA prospect, but um, he's still a little rough around the edges and he's just going to get better with more time here. Clinging with a car dealer or car, uh, car sponsorship is mental, a mental image. That's pretty funny to me. A seven foot two guy standing next to like a tiny little like compactor or something oh, like that. He's got his head out the sunroof of like a Toyota <laughs> J Cruiser. And he's like, yeah, guys, let's do this. That, that, that yeah. Can... Like where's Aspen he, Dental? He got, he got his teeth knocked out earlier in the year. Yeah. Apparently it happened again a, a wow. few days ago. Like, this is a no-brainer. Like, no. do I have to be doing this for everybody? Like, this Seriously. is this is, is money a for Donovan. Tremendous <laughs> fumbling of the bag. Yeah, I need him to look like Mr. Incredible in a Hyundai Sonata. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's so long. exactly so what it would be. He's sitting in the back seat, still operating the the pedals. <laughs> that would be awesome. In all seriousness, though, um, you, you look at all of his comparisons, and I know he's you know in a perfect world he's better than them. But Walker Kessler stayed two years. Alex Lynn, I think, stayed two, maybe three years. Um, Zach Eady, this is his junior year, right? It, it's very rare you see a guy jump after one year. And so I think combined with everything everyone else said, if there was a precedent for like, oh, seven-foot-two guy, send him, then yeah, I think there would be a very serious chance of that. But seeing how successful successful Walker Kessler was where he like – he kind of played the same amount that Klingon is now his first year at North Carolina, I think roughly ballpark. And then he got a more featured role in his sophomore year with Auburn. That's the trajectory. And he got in the lottery and he's producing for the jazz right now. I can see, you know, his team, Donovan's team sitting down and saying like, this is like your, your trajectory, have one more year with a featured role, your hometown team, a loaded recruiting class coming in, hopefully maybe a Big East tournament and a Sweet 16 run from his freshman year, build on that. And that's like the, you know, the the bow on top of his career. Yeah, I think something that's different is um, Sonogo is probably going to be around next year as well. So 
how how much do his minutes go up? Because they can't play, like they can do it a little bit, but they're not both getting twenty five minutes a night. It's probably going to be functionally a platoon again, and they might play them together a little bit, but it's not going to be all that often. So that featured role may or may not happen, um, unless Sonogo leaves, which. I don't think that that seems like a realistic possibility at this point in time. I think he's a little bit too much of a tweener, even if he has added the three-point shot to his arsenal. So will he really have that much of a, an expanded role, or will it just be more of the same? That's a big, like, cross that bridge when we get there type of scenario. I mean, I, I think it's definitely in the cards. I don't think it's as much of a slam dunk that Sonogo is back at UConn next year. What What that means for him, I don't know. That doesn't mean he's, you know, playing professionally or whatever, but um, I just think it's going to come down. There's probably going to be a decision that has to be made and it's between Sonogo and Klingon, but um, that's something that we can address at the end of the season. But I think that recruiting class that's coming in, I think actually plays a factor too. And um, hopefully it's something that we don't talk about a lot until March or April, because there's a lot more interesting stuff going on, but um it's it's a real reason to come back. Those are those are people that he all knows, right? That he's played against or played with in, in some capacity, I'm sure. And um, it's supposed to be one of the best recruiting classes in the country. So um, I think that's an incentive to kind of bring him back for one more year too, on on top of everything else. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of pieces that need to fit together on this roster next year. But with the transfer portal, it's hard to try and predict like who's coming back, who's going, who's who's staying, uh, who's staying home, who's going pro. I, I feel like Sonogo is going, um, I, again, not with any inside information or anything like that. I feel like he would feel like, you know, two straight years being an All-Big East player, uh, basically meeting the maximum of kind of what you can accomplish in college. Uh, how, how much more can he do for his stock with, with one more year kind of, kind of deal for, for Sonogo? Um, and I think for Klingon, yeah, it's, it's a lot of what you guys said. It's really just that someone has to step up with an NIL deal to make it, to make it really worthwhile, which should not be a problem for, uh, for a Bristol boy. He's got his friend, uh, you know, in college, Victor Rosa. I, I, I think that kind of stuff even matters. And then there's the possibility, like you said, of, you know, not just having that big sophomore year necessarily for the, for the stat sheet, but also just for his name, for his name brand as a player. If he's the guy, again, the hometown kid, is the best player or, or a leading player on a, on a UConn team that is going to be next year loaded with talent and uh, potentially making a run, you know, similar on par with, with this year's team or maybe even deeper. That's, that's all great stuff, right? And he makes a leap and really explodes as a player. That's all stuff that kind of like Patrick, you said about that guy puts you in the lottery conversation. It's just a much more comfortable path you can make for yourself that also starts with much more sponsorship money, uh, which which can be really helpful for your uh, for your career throughout. So I think there's there's all those benefits for him. He didn't come to UConn, I don't think, to just hang out for one year before he could go pro. But who knows? Anything anything could happen in the off season. I am interested in Sean Sean's theory of Sonogo returning. I I think we've all kind of just assumed in like an autopilot way that he's leaving after this year but I guess I guess he could stay and then that's where you're saying it's it's maybe some decisions time but I, I think Sonogo's gone and Klingon stays if I had to guess 
Yeah, I mean, I think the path there for for that, and, and Sean, I'll let you speak on it too, is like Sonogo probably comes back and plays as one of the four outside, whereas, you know, this year's team was four out, one in around Sonogo, and instead it's four out with Sonogo being one of those four, and Klingon is the one in, kind of showing that he can play, you know, front towards the basket and, and work off the dribble and get to the rack and, and kind of be that like stretch four type of guy. Um, that's that's the only way I could see it working. But I did have one more thing on Klingon, but Sean, I'll let you finish up. Yeah, for me, it's just like, I don't, I haven't seen too, too much NBA draft buzz for Sonogo. And while his draft stock might not get too, too much better when he's a year older and he's probably as close to a finished product as a college kid can get like why would you go to europe before you have to you know why not give it another another year at the nba trying to get into the nba and then go to europe after you have your degree which for someone from mali probably is a consideration you know getting that degree if you can make it work financially for another year or the six hundred you'd make in europe you could uh buy yourself a semester of school and probably still have some money left over. It's also true. So yeah, I mean, I think yeah. playing overseas is not like a bad way for your life to be. I know this is like a much deeper conversation, obviously. Um, obviously, it's not ideal, particularly if you're from, uh, not from a country to have to go move there to make your living certainly is is suboptimal, but um, you also, you can still make really great money if you do hang on in one of kind of like the top two or three leagues that are out there at this point. Um, the, the money out there is still a lot better than the G League money. And, you know, maybe for someone like Sonogo, who's fluent in French and maybe some other languages, uh, he could go play pro in France and it would not be too, uh, you know, too uh, much of a cultural upheaval for, for him. So uh making money making really good money is also cool uh and i just yeah I, I really think the fact that he i don't know how much more he can do for his professional stock by staying for another year um really really makes it seem like uh, a tough one for me yeah i think the only thing for sunogo is maybe like transferring to like a, and this is like really spitballing but like transferring to like a top two or three team next year like a i'm trying to like a kentucky type or an alabama type and like being the guy on that team like you know the the number one team wire to wire but like i don't even know how much that really proves like the big east is a legitimate conference yeah i don't, I don't think we need to talk too much about him transferring to a different school that's that's probably um a, a least likely scenario unless bar barring a uh, collapse the likes of which we we don't want or need to discuss right now. Uh, what we do have ahead of us is the Big East Tournament. Whoop, whoop. Uh, as I once recently tweeted, uh, just, just kind of imagine yourself in the alternate universe where you might be looking ahead to the conference tournament at Dickey's Arena in, in Fort Worth. Uh, so we're really excited to be in Madison Square Garden later this week. Uh, Patrick, Sean, and myself, and Madigan will we'll all be there at different points on different days, pending a victory on the first day. The Huskies will open with Providence at 2.30 p.m. on Thursday. 
The Friars beat UConn at home. They got crushed by UConn when they visited. Now they're in Madison Square Garden. I'm sure Providence will have some support there. Of course, we know what kind of support UConn gets there. How do we feel about this Big East tournament quarterfinals matchup against Providence? Ah, well, you know, as long as there's $2 beer night, Providence has no chance. That's that's all that needs to be said. But um, no, to to be honest, um, it's going to be. I know there you you would much rather play Providence than Creighton, uh, than Creighton or Xavier probably. But this is a Providence team that have what they've lost four out of the last five. They got publicly roasted um, by Ed Cooley being called arrogant. They they're not playing their best basketball. And you have to think that they're going to be coming into this with a massive chip on their shoulder. Um, They're probably reading all the Twitter narratives that if they lose, that they're somehow on the bubble of the NCAA tournament. So they're going to be absolutely desperate. They're going to be incredibly physical. Uh, The whistles are going to be tight. So yes, while there will be a home crowd there at the garden, um, it's going to be the rockiest of rock fights and you just have to hope that Dan Hurley is aware of that and has his team kind of with the same amount of chip on the shoulder um, because the matchups as we saw when they played on the road you know Bryce Hopkins is a load and um, you know what's uh, Devin Carter is you know a tough matchup as well so it will be, you know, I think if, if they can win one, I, I like their chances with Marquette, but it's going to be getting over that first hump. I think this game's either going to absolutely go down to the wire and be a final possession type of game, or UConn's going to win by 20. Either either Providence is going to have that chip on their shoulder, they're going to be ready, or they're, or they're done, they're toast. They've lost three or four, including that UConn game. They lost a close one at home to Xavier, which was their first home loss of the season. Um, and then they got waxed by Seton Hall at home on senior day with a, with a 20 point win on the road against Georgetown in between all that. So either Ed, either Ed Cooley is right and he's going to have his team ready and prepared and that worked where they're going to fold in their toast and it's UConn's going to roll with the, with the, with the, uh, pro UConn crowd. Yeah. I, I think Providence is definitely stumbling into this game on Thursday the Seton Hall loss is like inexcusable, just like an all-time like lay an egg moment for the Friars. Like that's just a game that they have to win. Uh, I believe if they won that, they they had a real good shot of getting into the three seed uh, in the tournament, which means you're playing Villanova instead of UConn. You know, Villanova's been pretty good as of late, but if you're a Friars fan, you, you probably like that matchup with the Wildcats a little bit more. Um, that being said, Bryce Hopkins is really good. He's probably the best player on the floor when they play when UConn and Providence play on Thursday um, that's a scary thing to deal with he's an absolute nightmare Caravan did an excellent job defending him the last time out um, but Hopkins is the type of player that can probably make an adjustment and, and kind of counteract that so I'm a little worried to see how UConn's going to defend him I think these are the type of players that take over in March right like we've seen that on UConn's end with Kemba, Shabazz, um, Jeremy Lamb for stretches. Like the good players, the cream rises to the top. 
um, Hopkins could absolutely carry this team to, you know, the, the Saturday championship game. And I, I think people would be maybe a little surprised, but nobody would really bat an eye. Um, it's still a good team. They're floundering right now. They're playing pretty poorly, honestly, like the opposite of their best basketball, right? Um, given their last two, three games. So it'll be an interesting matchup, but I think UConn has enough between the way that they're playing, the fan support at MSG, uh, and everything else that they can probably get by the Friars and likely play Marquette in that second round. But uh, I don't think it'll be an easy one either, Sean. I, I, I'm generally feeling pretty confident for, for, you know, a lot of the reasons you guys mentioned, just the fact that the last game was, was such a confident, uh, confident and confidence building uh, win. I'm almost glad they lost. They lost at Providence because, as as we love to say, uh, a phrase that I made up myself, it's hard to beat a team three times. Uh, Providence does have slightly more to be playing for. You could say just when the fact that they maybe want to boost their tournament resume for an at-large bid a little bit more. Uh, whereas UConn, UConn is pretty much where it is. It can it can kind of play itself into a maybe a higher seed by winning the whole thing and beating the teams that would come along the way. But I think, I think still has maybe a little less, less to play for. You could say, I, I really think for Providence, it's going to take a, a special brew of a lot of different things. They're going to have to get Adama Sonogo into foul trouble, uh, have some threes, have some dude who averages four points a game, score 21 get, while simultaneously getting a special performance from, from Hopkins. I really think it's going to take like, that much uh to be honest for providence i think uconn showed that they are a class above them in the last game they've shown that in the way that they closed out the rest of the season i mean providence closing on on such bad terms uh i'm i'm kind of with patrick where it's like it almost worries you because maybe they they uh they have some regression to the mean or whatever and and then have some better performances than they might coming up in their future, but um, in a in a more real way, I'm feeling really solid about this this matchup with Providence. Um, would really really like their chances against Marquette in what would be an absolutely explosive home environment on Friday night at Madison Square Garden, uh, and then you know from there uh, see what happens. But uh, I I was saying before the Big East tournament, kind of without knowing the exact bracket that uh, definitely expected expected one win at least from them here uh, from UConn here. Um, I'm, I'm ready to make that like 1.5, you know, put, put the over under at 1.5 and say, look, UConn is in really good shape to win two here. I know Marquette is tough, but they match up really well against them and then have them in this in a de facto home game. So um and I and I really do like this this Providence matchup, uh, and and Ken Palm does as well. So I think uh, think things are brewing nicely for for UConn here going into the Big East tournament. Yeah, I think it's worked out pretty well too. I mean, if you look at the grand scheme of things, like across the board, the only person, the only team that the Huskies lost to twice was Xavier, and uh, Zach Fremantle is going to be out for the season now um, with his foot injury. So that's a big blow. He uh, torched Caravan in that first game um, in Cincinnati. And then um, we all know how that UConn Xavier game went in Gamble and how that started. 
uh, and it was really kind of no coming back from there for that one. So um, UConn can beat every single team that's in the tournament, um, which I don't know if we could have said uh, in years past. And so it's just a matter of whether you can keep it going and um, keep things rolling, keep that momentum going on. But I, I definitely think they can at least reach the the championship game and, and maybe win it depending on how the chips fall. I don't think it's out of the question. And um, I think they can kind of play a little loose too. There's not, there's not a lot to lose really for them. Like th- there's no, bad losses out there I don't think it's not like their seating is going to get torched if they beat Providence and lose to Marquette or whatever um so I I I think there's it's like a win-win situation they can really go all out and and try and get their first Big East title since they came back they are the Ken Palm favorite um they have a 32.2 percent chance to win according to uh our lord and savior Ken Pomeroy that is ahead of Creighton at 21 and a half Marquette at 20.2 and Xavier at 15.7 and everyone else is under five. Are you guys worried about like, I, I listen, I don't want to even go near the whole narrative that Dan Hurley can't win a close game. Not touching that with a 10 foot, 10 foot pole, but because this team has been so, so good and they've eventually like blown out everyone they've played, but this is, this is tournament ball. This is, this is a little bit different if there's four minutes left and teams are trading possessions, we saw, I think the only example I can really think of is that Creighton on the road. And they had so many chances to take the lead or, or kind of pull away. And they kind of just, it, it wasn't coaching, not going to go down that road. It, it was just a lack of execution. And do you think that there is a lack of experience there of like, you know, they eventually just go on these kill shots and knock teams out of ever coming back. It ain't going to be like that, at least, uh, you know, for three games in three days. At some point, there's going to be a tight game. Do they have the ability to execute, like, down the stretch where, like, the margin of error is, like, so, so thin? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely am. Uh, I, I think it, like you said, I'm. It, this is not a Dan Hurley late in game. I, absolutely not. I'm not going to pre- pretend to be uh, someone who knows that. But I do think just not having enough really strong ball handlers, uh, having enough guys who can just kind of take the ball up court and score. You know, I think that's that's what's kind of been starting to change and what's been really encouraging. We've seen Hawkins attack the hoop when his shot's not falling. And we've seen now Andre Jackson really do a good job of getting to it. Um, you know, I know I brought him up earlier, but he had, he has, he's had four double-digit scoring games in the last five after having four all the rest of the season. So he's he's found something offensively, and I think he's always been able to help break presses and that kind of thing, Jackson. And Sonogo is also a really strong ball handler uh, for, for a post player. Um, I think that that's kind of going to be the thing, is, is those guys are the ball handlers, try and get it to Hawkins ASAP, uh, you know, Newton. It's, it's definitely a group effort. Uh, which is which is new territory for UConn, but I'm concerned about it. But I also think they have some semblance of a of a plan around that. Yeah, I I think it's just going to come down to finding that lineup to not necessarily close games. I think that's a different lineup, but finding a group of five guys that can get the ball in, break the press, 
knock down free throws. Um, this is a pretty good free throw shooting team. Sonogo's 80%. Newton is 80%. Hawkins is almost 88%. Um, and Andre Jackson is 70% too. Um, and and Caravan and Aline are over 80%. So those are all guys that you can play during crunch time. I actually think, like you said, Amon, you have to play Andre Jackson um, just because if he's around the perimeter, teams still sag off him and he's an incredible passer. He can knock down free throws. I, I don't have any issues with him having the ball late. Um, I think a lot of the problems that UConn ran into um, in some of the games where things got maybe closer than they expected was it was a lot of guys that were coming in to shoot free throws but weren't necessarily handling the ball the whole game. Like, I think there was one game where, like, they are trying to inbound. Tristan Newton was trying to inbound to, like, some combination of Nahima Lane and Joey Calcaterra and Hassan Diara, who hadn't, you know, really handled the ball all game until the last two, three minutes of, of crunch time. So things get a little dicey then. But I feel like Dan Hurley really likes to ride with his guys as we get closer to tournament play, maybe for better or for worse. But um, I think that means a lot more leaning on starters like Newton, like Hawkins, like Sonogo, uh, and Caravan even as a freshman. And I think we'll just see them around more late. And I think that bodes well for their chances at closing out games in those last 90 seconds or whatever. Yeah, to me, it's about, uh, you know, again, start to get into the immeasurables, but like poise, focus, uh, that kind of thing. Um, We've seen some lapses there, but I think, that's the thing that they've really sharpened as of late is not ever letting a team get in back into it. Even if the first half is a bit of a rock fight, or even if there are some stretches where shots aren't falling for, for a Hawkins um, that they still keep a buffer, have the offense going, just play a little bit smarter. It's, it's, it's certainly not a talent issue. Um, and so in that respect, it's hopefully that they're composed enough that they are believing in themselves enough late in games. Uh, on that front, we shall see, right? Like anything can obviously happen in one of these games. And if one of them is one of them is having a bad day, if one of Adama Sanogo or Jordan Hawkins is having a bad day, that could be it because maybe UConn doesn't have someone. But we've seen enough evidence that there is, you know, like firepower, that there is some dependability across the rest of the roster. They just have to, you know, not not be scared of the moment and all that kind of thing. The stuff we can't see or measure, but um, I, I definitely feel better about it just lately, given given how Andre Jackson's been playing. I would say. All right, that's gonna do it for us. Thank you for listening.